High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Coming up on today's show. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Play classic games through Plex. GoldenEye is leaking. And GameStop's stock soars. All this and our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. John, the Amiga scene is really thriving at the moment. We've got new games being made. We've got a new magazine in Amiga Addict. We've got cases in those Checkmate cases which are coming through, the new Checkmate, uh, Checkmate Mini. And uh, we've got lots of hardware upgrades to choose from, which makes life as an Amiga fan really enjoyable. And it really brings those classic range of Amigas back to life and makes them easier to use in the modern day. The latest upgrade on the scene goes by the name of Buffy. And I think we just need to take a moment to appreciate the cheekiness of that name, because Buffy is, of course, a vampire slayer. (laughs) And if I were a vampire, I'd be nervous, too, because as a big fan of the Vampire Accelerator for the Amiga, both the standalone model and the upgrade, I actually am lucky enough to have both of those models, which are FPGA based devices with a very hefty price tag. What Buffy is doing and Buffy's uh, attempt to slay the vampire is to make claims of an outrageous speed increase for your Amiga beyond even that of the vampire and hopefully at an affordable price because the vampire isn't particularly cheap. Now, what Buffy is, is it's a drop-in upgrade. It replaces the 68,000 CPU, so you just take that out, drop in the Buffy straight into the slot, which of course means you need an Amiga 500 or 2000, one of those models that lets you just take it out, unlike the 600, which has the square package soldered onto the board. So if you've got one of those models of Amiga, you're in luck. You can just swap out the CPU. And um, I guess what they're trying to do with it is um, it's a bit like a retro version of the Bugatti. Do you remember they did the, the Veyron supercar, oh, yeah. John? Mm-hmm. You know, and they, they wanted to make the first mass-produced 1,000-horsepower supercar, didn't they? Well, now, wait wait a minute. I, th- I think you'll find, Neil, that it was an American car that did that. The <laughs> SSC Ultimate Aero, Neil, American right? Power, gave us the, uh, the first 1,000 BHP car. Mm. I think it's debatable unofficially. Unofficially, perhaps officially, it was the SSC arrow. I don't know. I think that's for a whole other podcast. Though. <laughs> <laughs> that's anyway, for this week in supercars. Stay that's tuned. right. That's right. <laughs> but the uh, the 1000 brake horsepower, that was the mythical figure that they wanted to hit first. And the Buffy, well, it's not trying to hit a thousand horses. Of course, it's trying to hit a thousand MIPS. The goal is to produce a 3.2 gigahertz. Yes, 3.2 gigahertz in my Amiga 500 <laughs> with uh, oh my the 68. Gosh. 6830 instruction set and they want to crunch code at a thousand MIPS so MIPS standing for millions of instructions per second so to put that into some kind of context the stock 68000 CPU in my A500 produces 0.54 MIPS and we're looking mm. at a thousand so not even a million instructions per second as as stock 1850 times the performance by my calculations Um, if they manage to pull it off. So um, that's pretty good. And as a bonus, this also houses 512 or one gigabyte of RAM on board. Now, it's the creation of Rennie Cousins and Tim Wacker, who started work on it back in 2019, when it was conceived as the ultimate 68,000 accelerator. In their words, they wanted to actually deliver on the promises made by the Vampire Accelerator. 
Their words, not mine. They go on to say that they are disappointed by its direction and lack of any performance improvements. So we named the project Buffy for obvious reasons. Boy, you know, they, they are really, they're, they're really sticking it to the, the vampire crew. It'll be interesting to see how the community takes this. So I get that it wants to outperform the vampire in terms of just raw speed, but those vampires, of course, also give you a lot more. They give you HDMI output. Uh, they add an IDE port for a hard drive. Does the Buffy have any of that stuff? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. And um, it doesn't. It doesn't. This is just a CPU and RAM upgrade by the mm. looks of it. Um, very clear in what its goal are. Speed and a bit of RAM, not just a bit of RAM, a lot of RAM in the context of an Amiga. It's a drop-in replacement for the engine. You, you, you're still banging on the original custom chips and going through the original video output in the case of my Amiga 500. You'll still need some kind of hard drive upgrade um, because there's no ID port built into the 500. So should we say it's pure and simple in that respect? It's very well defined in what they want to achieve and um, I, I do just wish if they could slip in a micro SD card reader on there for a hard drive, it would be the perfect package for me. You know, it'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the Amtopia article here, and it seems that HDMI, Ethernet, and some sort of a flash storage solution, as well as maybe some other features, will be coming in a future revision. But uh, releasing features that are coming in the future doesn't exactly do wonders for early adoption rates. So I hope that that doesn't put people off buying the first generation and then limiting development of future generations. I mean, it's impressive. There's no denying that. But the current revision of this project only giving you raw power and not any of the other benefits of a vampire like HDMI out. I've got to be honest with you. I, I don't really need that much power in my Amiga. I mean, what do you do with all those MIPS when you're just going to be firing up your system for a quick game of Speedball 2 or listening to some sweet Hoffman mods or something? <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's a really good question. I honestly don't know. It's one of those things, though, if you get stuck on the why, you kind of end up in a dead end in your logic and reasoning. But let's just enjoy the fact that there is competition. There are devices like this competing to outdo each other. And... That can only result in good things, I think. Personally, my hope for this is that they aim to keep it as cheap as possible because the Vampire is so expensive. And um, it's great that, you know, it's got the ARM processor on this thing. So, yes, it might be able to hit 1,000 MIPS, as is their goal. But I would be happy to see an option to choose your clock speed for compatibility, you know. So you can ramp it up if you're developing something new, have all of that speed. Um you know, maybe you're developing a new web browser for the Amiga, which it so desperately needs. Or mm. you could dial it down. Uh, just say you've got enough overhead, for example, to use WHD load, which is a launcher to play old floppy disk based games from a hard drive. You know, just to be able to dial it down and have that control, that would be really nice for me. I don't want 3.2 gigahertz, John, you know. Um, <laughs> but of course, of course, price is really key on this thing. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned price. I just heard from our producer, Duncan, that a price was announced for this just as we're recording. Uh, it looks like the 512 meg version is going to sell for $140, and the 1 gig edition is going to be 200 So uh, it's, of course, massively cheaper than the Vampire. So if you're looking for um, <clears throat> power without the price... Or, uh, I guess maybe power without the HDMI is more accurate. Uh, this may be the upgrade for you. Hmm, yeah, 140 or $200. I've got a bad feeling that's going to translate to 140 or 200 pounds. As oh, the old UK tax. Here. Yeah, that's we'll, no good. We'll see. We'll see. 
Uh, and looking at the bigger picture, I have read that they also hope to make this a drop-in chip for other 68,000-based computers. And if they can oh. do that, if they can expand out into all of those other user groups and markets, right. then they could be in with a good chance. Personally, I was hoping this would come in at under $100 personally. Oh, that would have been seen great. what's on there. But, you know, I understand there's a lot of work and effort going into this behind the scenes. So, um, yes, it is a lot cheaper than a vampire and we'll see, you know, how it how how people get on with it when it's launched. Um, how about you, our listeners? Do you need a thousand MIPS in your Amiga? What would you do with it if you did? Would you be creating modern software for the platform or just seeing how quickly it runs Frontier Elite? I know a lot of you will be doing that <laughs> before going back to a game of Magic Pockets. Let us know in the This Week in Retro subreddit, which is linked in the show notes, as well as all of the other links mentioned in today's show. Neil, not content to be the movie and TV show hub of millions of people around the world. Plex, which is the, the service that allows you to easily stream content anywhere in the world from your home server, has expanded into the retro games market. As of January 26th, Plex users have the ability to play classic arcade games through the same app that now delivers their movie libraries and complete runs of Auto Man and Manimal. Neil, are you a Plex user? Uh, what TV series uh, complete runs are you most proud of owning? Mm, mm, well, owning—that's the operative word. Do Plex <laughs> owners really own most of their content? Great on? question. <laughs> Do not answer that. <laughs> I am a Plex user. I've been using it for many years now. Uh, it's got to be over five years now. It's been around for a long time, Plex. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I love it. As much as I like cloud-based services, there's something much more satisfying for a techie like me to be able to host that tech yourself on your own server, have your own private cloud, and hook up all your devices uh, th through Plex, whether it's your smartphone, your tablet, wherever you are, to be able to link back to your own Plex server. I, I love it. It's really good. It works really well. In terms of TV series... I mean, I chop and change all the time. A favorite at the moment is Black Books. I've been watching oh, yeah. my way through Black Books for the umpteenth time this week. So I'll go with that. Um, but John, what about this Plex Arcade? Good idea, bad idea. And is putting games or ROMs onto your device, um, you know, is this a thin client setup where you're streaming the game from your Plex server? Um, how does it all work? I'd like to know more. Well, whether this is a good or a bad idea, on the face of it, I'm all for being able to play games whenever and whenever you like. Uh, Plex has certainly changed the way that I watch movies and TV. Uh, long after a lot of my friends set up Windows Media servers and things like that, you know, I, I always figured it was too complicated. Plex makes it super easy, so I'm a big fan of the platform. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, I don't know if I need yet another way to get my classic gaming fix. Uh, you know, I already have a million computers and many consoles to play with at home. And on the road, a portable device, uh, you know, using like an iPad, uh, you'll need to carry around a controller, which of course takes up just as much space as carrying a discrete handheld system like a PSP that's probably going to give you a better overall experience. Uh, unlike rips of TV shows and movies, classic games take up next to no space on a portable device. You can store a whole library on a single memory card without an issue. So um, this probably wouldn't work for me. I never really got used to uh, using on-screen, you know, virtual controls on the actual glass surface of my portable device. So I'm, I'll probably say no. But can you think of any situation this would work for you in real life, Neil? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all the usual issues that you get with mobile gaming, whether it's uh, a game that's hosted locally on your memory card or being streamed remotely. It's, it's the same issues, really, isn't it? Um, just mm-hmm. in terms of the tech, have you seen anything? Do you know if this is streaming from your Plex server or is this just relaying you to a remote service? I believe that uh, it is both. I believe that okay. the Atari games are being streamed from Plex's servers. And if you are uh, you know, customizing this setup with your own ROMs and emulators, of course, that would come from your own server. Right. Okay. Okay. I did read something about um, a collaboration with a service called Parsec. So mm-hmm. I wonder if they're just sort of relaying from them through your Plex right. server right. to you. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But, um, you know, I'm not adverse to thin client gaming and and plenty of people do do it with current gen games consoles on things like the nvidia shield uh, to send your gaming pc to your tv i've got a friend who just does not shut up about how much he loves nvidia shield he has his 38 <laughs> he's one of those people yeah one of those people he's got <laughs> <laughs> he's got his 38070 based gpu you know uh, gaming pc upstairs which draws about 600 watts when it's spinning up oh and makes gosh. the room incredibly hot but he just yeah. streams it down to his tv downstairs so uh-huh. you know that that works really well for him um so i'm not adverse to that and i can see the benefits of thin client gaming but i'm not a big consumer of the 8-bit atari console games you know do i want to play pitfall on the bus probably not you know um there is a very interesting line in this story uh, which is linked which i read and it said you'll also be able to add your own game roms and emulators to your library so you know i know atari is the headline they like to use the good old name atari to generate some big headlines but um, it looks like it's, it's a little bit deeper than that when you scratch the surface. So it does look like it has the potential to be your personal emulation streaming cloud if you uh, get around to setting it all up with your own emulators and your own ROMs and you can get lots of systems in there. So I think it might be a bit more interesting than just Asteroids and Pitfall, John. Right, right. I, I agree with you. The other thing that we need to mention is the price. Unlike the Plex Media Server, which has a very, in my opinion, robust feature set for the low, low price of free, uh, Plex Arcade is going to run you $3 a month if you're already a Plex Pass subscriber or $5 a month if you purchase it as a standalone subscription. Uh, That is pretty steep, in my opinion, considering the Apple Arcade, Google Stadia, and stuff like that. I mean, they're not much more than that, and they give you a whole library of modern games, not just some old, you know, Atari arcade games or maybe 2600 games. So, uh, from the review on Ars Technica, the feature you mentioned of being able to add your own emulators and ROMs, it is possible, but it's not as easy as, say, adding a core to RetroArch. Uh, There are a lot of steps that you have to go through, apparently. But even with this feature, we're talking about a pretty hefty fee just to be able to play Asteroids and Missile Command for the upteenth time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Me, personally, I'm probably going to give this one a miss. Uh, But, you know, different strokes for different folks. Uh, If any of our listeners have decided to take the plunge, let us know in the subreddit. We'd love to hear your experience with it. And uh, speaking of the subreddit, we want to thank user Derek Flamelily for suggesting this story to us. Now, John Goldeneye on the N64 seems to come up quite a lot lately on our podcast, whether it's um, game controllers being smashed together or stories of it being the only game that my dad ever played. (laughs) It comes up, but (laughs) we've got another story about it this week. Of course, it doesn't need much of an introduction. It's that iconic first-person shooter that turned the heads of PC gamers in the mid-90s and proved that consoles could take on the PC master race at that genre. 
There were, of course, Bond games before, and there have been many since, but few have captured the excitement of GoldenEye, not least because of the four-player split-screen deathmatch from the same couch. None of this online gaming. This was shoulder-to-shoulder gaming with our mates. Well, it turns out that the Xbox 360 got a remaster of the game, which was never released. Rumours were rife from those on the inside who had seen it, and we did get some footage uh, showing this game in action back in 2016, but we'd kind of all resigned ourselves to the fact that we'd never get to play it, it would never see the light of day, and we'd never drop out of the ventilation shaft onto some (laughs) Russians in the toilet (laughs) in high definition. It just wasn't going to happen. Until now... You see, Spanish streamer Grazlu00, good name, claims that he was sent the game ROM anonymously. And he fired it up on an Xbox 360 emulator to confirm it was real. And indeed it was. And it also came with a note instructing the streamer not to reveal it until a certain date. And the note also said, never say never, release coming soon, James. You know, this is it's, it's it sounds just like a Bond film. I mean, it all it needs is for the disc to somehow explode when you complete the game. <laughs> it really does. It does. And uh, the streamer who's a veteran of speedrunning the original game, one of those crazy speedrunners that you see on Twitch, um, mm. he's recorded a playthrough of the game on the 360. So it, it's effectively the first ever full speedrun of GoldenEye on the 360. So this is the full game. This is the full GoldenEye. You know, was it 100% complete? Well, it looks pretty complete to me, John, from what I've seen and read. Um, of course, the Xbox 360 is vastly more powerful than the N64. It looks like the level of detail in the maps, it, it remains about the same as the original N64 version. It doesn't really look like there's many more polygons on the scenery itself, but they have made big improvements to the character models. Of course, the resolution has been upped. That's higher. The textures are clearer. The view distance is vastly improved. And there's not that signature N64 slowdown during particularly mm, yeah. frantic firefights or when the explosions go off. The 360 can handle all of that with ease. So... It does look to me, you know, like it could be the ultimate way of playing the game without ruining the experience, without trying to layer too much on top of it. It is what it is. It's it's quite pure to the original game with some nice improvements. And, of course, there's that cryptic hint that a full release might be going public soon. So, um, yeah, I'll definitely be trying this one out as soon as I can find where to download it from because I don't think it's available or going to be available through classic channels. Um, who mm. knows? Who knows? But... um. John, did you enjoy some GoldenEye couch co-op back in the day, or were you just too busy playing Final Fantasy all day? Oh, boy. Here we go again. <laughs> After this week, Neil, I think we need a This Week in Retro moratorium on both of these games. Uh, no more Final Fantasy and GoldenEye talk. Uh, seriously, though. At the time of the release of the N64, as you'll recall, Square had moved its properties to some upstart in the game business. I don't know, Sony something? It's not really important. So, this was perfect timing for a new obsession to enter my life, and that obsession was GoldenEye. Uh, the stage was perfectly set. I was a senior in high school. I had a car, Neil. I had a banging 1982 Volvo. It was Ooh, a mean my, machine. My, nice. Mine and, was about 1982. I had a, an 82 Ford Escort. It was gold, and it had a beige interior. Oh, my gosh. I oh, love yeah. it. We need, we need to post some pictures of that on the subreddit. <laughs> 
So after school, I loaded up the Volvo with more friends than was probably safe. At some point, we were putting people in the trunk, uh, and uh, yeah, it was, a, <laughs> it was not something that I do today. But uh, we proceeded directly to my house to play five or six hours of GoldenEye. Uh, just like your dad, I think this was a game that brought people who weren't normally into the gaming scene into it just because the graphics were so faithful to the movie, especially at the time. They were so realistic, and the multiplayer was such a riot. Yeah, yeah, and of course the Bond franchise was just such a draw to people who yeah. perhaps you know wouldn't normally play video games. So yeah, it's mm-hmm. great. I really got into it in college. We we had a routine on a Wednesday where we had no scheduled lectures, so we'd all meet in town. We'd get our lunch. We'd go over to my friend Jamie's house, and we would just spend all day when we probably should have been writing our assignments. We spent all day playing GoldenEye death matches shoulder to shoulder, and I think with online gaming being what it is now, it's much much rarer that we get the opportunity to play in that way uh, of course particularly right now with the world being <laughs> in the situation it is in mm-hmm. but um you know even even in a normal year it's just really rare that we get to get to to play in that way and um you know giving your enemy a dead leg next to you on the sofa to put them off their shot that is a legitimate pro gamer <laughs> tactic in my view john so you just can't do that remotely that, that's what <laughs> esports is missing we need to put these guys right next to each other on the couch and let them sort of elbow each other a little bit a little bit of action yeah yeah i want to see them wearing like full american football padding just to get through the game (laughs) that would be great i'd love it but uh, yeah this is definitely a game i think to get hold of and play here in the cave if it brings back the old magic that like it used to then i'd love a dedicated screen here and a sofa for visitors to come and challenge me to golden eye on one to keep an eye on for sure so uh yeah keep an eye on it maybe keep a golden eye on it even oh dear Neil, for the most part, we tend to stay away from the financial side of matters here on the show. But every once in a while, I like to dip my toe into the bottom line of gaming-related companies. If you're at all interested in the stock market, you couldn't miss the fact that this week's biggest story was the spectacular rise of the stock price of GameStop seemingly out of nowhere. Which to me is very surprising since all trends now in shopping tend to be pointing towards digital distribution. Now, Neil, growing up in the pre-internet age, what were some of your favorite places to shop for games? Are are any of them left now? Oh, yeah. Everywhere was a video game shop in the UK in the 80s and 90s. The video store, the corner shop, the chemists, the stationers, they all had racks of games in them. And of course cassettes were the main uh, medium here in the uk on the 8-bit micros so anyone could stack a, a carousel of cassettes in their store and pretty much anyone and everyone did uh, later came the big box games so you know that reduced down the number of stores that stocked them but um you know you could go into boots the chemists and i did and buy some sun cream and a copy of last ninja 2 uh, so <laughs> everywhere absolutely everywhere was a video game store is, is that like salad cream uh, sun cream it's uh, you know sunblock sunblock oh sunblock yeah, yeah, okay yeah okay, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah but if i had to pick one store um it was in the 90s there was this old covered market in a town called paul in dorset on the south coast here and there was this guy in there who had a pitch and um he had what we'd now call a retro game shop but back then retro gaming wasn't a thing so it was just a shop full of old games that nobody really wanted anymore (laughs) and you could take your games in and you could trade them up for other games but you know this place it was floor to ceiling games there was no organization to it it was 
on the face of it, yes, it was a mess. But to me, it was a goldmine. Every system you could imagine was there. He had Neo Geos behind the counter. He had piles of old 8-bit games in the 90s. Atari Jaguars, just all sorts. And I loved being in that place. I'd take a train, especially to get there uh, any weekend I could and have a look around. It was wonderful. And um, I remember just before he closed down, I went in there and I bought Ultima 3, 4 and 5. I bought Space Rogue, which was another game by Origin Systems. And I picked up some Sierra point and click adventure games. I can't remember exactly which ones they were now. But I paid between 50 pence and £1.50 for each of those games. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. Complete. Wow. Unbelievable. And and those ultimate games will pick up over £50 each now, yeah. all day, all day Easy. long. Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously I wasn't buying them to to sell up and scalp, but it was just an amazing place. And if I, if I could ever get a time machine, that's what I'd go back to, that store in the mid-90s, and I would just stock up on all of the retro that I ever wanted. <laughs> How about you, John? Um, well, you know, GameStop comes from a lineage of some of the greatest video game stores in history. Uh, when I was a teenager... Uh, I used to take a trip to software, etc. at the mall, and that was a great experience. It was really the only place around that actually sold PC games. Uh, unlike in the UK, I think, you didn't really see games for computers for sale in places like you know drugstores or convenience stores. Uh, the console rental market was present there. So you could rent NES games wherever you wanted, where you could swing a cat and hit 15 stores that rented NES games. But you never saw PC games for sale, even in like big stores like Kmart, especially the more niche titles. So um, software, etc., Babbage's, these were the only places you could get these. And uh, it was a sad day when software, et cetera, was enveloped by the GameStop empire. You know, I'd love to patronize the current GameStop. I'm still a big fan of going to physical stores, you know, browsing around and maybe coming out with something entirely different than what I went in for. But unfortunately, the current setup of GameStop just makes the entire experience horrible. Uh, The last time I went in one, there was a guy behind the counter. He was more interested in talking to the myriad of kids who were obviously just there to hang out while their parents shopped elsewhere than he was helping me. He was also about the same age as some of those kids, which probably had something to do with it. Um, When I did check out, I had to opt out of half a dozen programs, you know, various clubs and other services that would only be an extra two or three dollars to the cost of my, well, my game was only about five or six bucks. So, you know, it was, it was just a horrible, a horrible thing. Uh, not to mention the fact that the, the game that I was buying, I could have bought cheaper on Amazon anyway. So I don't mind paying extra for something in a physical store if I get a good experience out of it. But when I got home, I had to spend time removing what seemed to be the stickiest stickers ever created <laughs> from the disc, from the, the box everything so do you get this kind of nonsense from the used game stores over across the pond neil you're a grumpy old man john i am the grumpiest (laughs) we have cex over here which sounds like a similar kind of deal you know it's not really game focused it's full of dvds and cds and old camcorders and um microphones from streamers who never quite made it you know in the windows there so Mm -hmm. it's not really a specialist gaming shop but you can go there for your games um i was just thinking while you were talking about your memories there i I remember when i was a kid of only about 12 or 13 years old i was lucky enough my, my parents took me to florida to do the the dream disneyland or disney world whichever one it is over there tour mm-hmm. and um i remember going into a, an electronics store and having come from the british stores full of cassette tapes on carousels in the corner of a chemist to see a store 
that was dedicated to big box PC and Amiga games. And it was full. It was stacked full of Police Quest and Leisure Suit Larry and King's Quest and all of those big, big box games. You know, these, those yeah. boxes were huge. Um, and it just, I remember it felt like being in a movie to go to an American mm. video game store back then. Quite mm-hmm. a different experience from what I was used to. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, good memories. Anyway, uh, over here in the UK now, the best video game stores for me, of course, I'm looking for retro video games, is the little independent stores, you know, the ones that you have to really hunt out. And the nearest one to me is called Retro Games HQ in Swindon. And the nice thing about that is it's, it's owned, and run, owned and run by a game called Pete. And um, it's located at the back of a vinyl record store run by another guy. So he's not interested in selling you the vinyls. He just happens to be in the same store. He's got all of the the specialist knowledge that you might want. So you can go in and you can pick up, you know, all the retro games. I think I bought some Mega Drive games last time I went in there. And and you can pick up a, a new album on vinyl. Uh, in, that, 20, that, that's a good, in 2020 uh, that, was the last time I went there. 2020, I bought a Mega Drive game and a new vinyl, vinyl record, John. Can you do that in GameStop? <laughs> I, I, you know, they're selling vinyl records so many places these days. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little corner True. carousel, yeah. just like the cassette carousel in The Chemist, that would sell you, know, would sell you a, a, a new Taylor Swift album in, in GameStop. But I, th- I think that's a pretty good business model, you know, having the records up front and the games in the back because the kids are all going to come in for the records because kids are all crazy about vinyl these days. But then he can say, and how about some of these old games? Maybe get them into that scene a little bit. And there you go. You, you developed a whole new generation of fans. So, um, But getting back to the story, uh, times may be changing for uh, the much maligned GameStop and for the better, possibly. Uh, last August, Ryan Cohen, he's the billionaire founder of the pet food delivery startup Chewy.com. Uh, he bought a significant stake in the company in an effort to pivot it from a traditional brick-and-mortar business to focus on the modern digital distribution side of things. Now, the reason why this may work is that GameStop has a database of something like 50 million names and addresses. So there's potential there to get them all on board pretty quickly and build a Steam-like service with a ready stream of customers. What do you think about this, Neil? Is there space in uh, in your taskbar for another games launcher? No. <laughs> no, there isn't, John. I mean, let's be honest, Steam has the market covered, really, because it was so early to the game. And it's matured on to be the default gaming service on my PC. I think it's probably the same for a lot of people. The Me only too. reason any other game service ever gets installed on my PC is if it has an exclusive that I'm forced to install the service to access pretty much the only time i have to do it so the only way gamestop service would be installed for me is if they get huge exclusive releases you know you say they've got 50 million names 50 million uninterested people aren't going to help you you need product you need that exclusive to get them installing and to get them on board so yeah yeah i'm not entirely confident that that's going to work but i know there's more to the gamestop news though than this this week how does this all figure into last week's mammoth gain gains in the GameStop stock (laughs) well uh, apparently ryan cohen wasn't the only person who thought gamestop stock was undervalued uh wall street bets is a subreddit only slightly less popular than the the, this week in retro subreddit uh (laughs) they there there was a user there uh that posted in early january that he believed the stock should be trading higher than its current 20 dollar value and the 2.2 million members of that community agreed uh in what may have been the first uh market manipulation via reddit uh 
a bunch of these Reddit users bought into the GameStop craze and caused the stock to rocket to a high of over $400 last week. Now, it's since come way back down to earth at about $50 a share, but it's still trading at about twice the value of what it was in January. So uh, if the GameStop business itself is worth that much or not, uh, as with all stocks, it's it's all sort of a matter of conjecture. But it will be really interesting to see what moves the GameStop mo- board might make in view of all this publicity and whether either a revamp of its physical stores or the launch of a digital distribution platform will follow in its wake. So with all of that new market cap, the board could really spruce things up a bit, I think. Uh, What do you think, Neil? Uh, Given a big pile of cash to throw around, would you, as GameStop's chairman, double down on the brick-and-mortar side of things? And if you did, what would you do to change to improve the experience there? Uh, John, as love as, as much as I'd love to see more physical game stores, um, it's. I think we all know it's not sustainable, is it? It's mm-hmm. just not going to happen. You'll be selling nothing but jewel cases with download codes in them, as many stores already do right now. That's that's all it comes down to. Um, I think there's an opportunity if they're agile enough to. Um, well, and traditionally they're not that agile. <laughs> they're quite no. a big lumbering <laughs> company, but you know if they're agile enough, there is an opportunity to be had. Um, I remember there was a press release made by GameStop in 2011 here in the UK, and it announced that you could now buy games from them in the UK 24 hours a day, seven days a week. How could you do this? That's right, John, with their new website. Boom. <laughs> imagine, <laughs> imagine a website that's always open in 2011. <laughs> so kind of a Ahead of the curve of, as always, GameStop. Yeah, Good work. yeah, yeah. So... Um, you know, what they have got out of this is a huge boost in brand awareness as a result of the stock pump and perhaps a chance to also play the little guy card, you know, fighting for survival against the faceless hedge fund managers who are betting on their demise. So they could leverage that somehow. Um, and if they're going to do that, they need to do it right now because this will be old news in a few weeks time. And, you know, I think in the longer term, the trend of their decline will will resume, albeit with a gigantic spike in their share price as a result of these shenanigans. But it's certainly yeah. been interesting to watch, John. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, if you'd like to read more about this whole saga, I suggest you check out, well, the internet. Yeah, everybody's writing about it. But this has to be the most press GameStop has ever had. Uh, I'm sure that they would not necessarily want it this way, but that's the way it goes. Uh, and even if you haven't gotten rich or extremely poor out of the stock price, Maybe at the end of the day, uh, everyone will end up with a better in-store experience as a result of all this. Mm, don't hold your breath. <laughs> Maybe not. I did see, actually, they've moved on already. I saw that Elon Musk um, did a tweet the other day about Dogecoin, and that oh, yes. shot up 50%. So, you know, I think I think the people behind this have got a taste for it, and uh, I think they're quickly moving on to other things. But it's been I fun. I agree. It's been fun. Yeah. All right, Neil. So now we're going to start our new feature on this weekend retro, our community question of the week. So, Neil, do you want to give us a recap on what that question was and read some of the responses? Sure. The question over on our subreddit was, what new game, system, or retro skill did you discover during lockdown? Or for those that haven't been in lockdown just during the pandemic. JTD121 says soldering again with better equipment, too. 
for our UK viewers, that's soldering. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, a.k.a. Hermsky, says, For me, it was the introduction to the Mr. FBGA, a great self-build project with so much to learn from the developing cause. Also, I spent a lot of time this year revisiting a few 8-bit text adventure games. Richard Shears writes, For me, it was getting around to getting around to something that Neil showed me some time back, the future of retro, and that's the Mr. FPGA, and experiencing systems I would otherwise not be able to. Thank you, Neil. The future is indeed FPGA. <laughs> Those Mr. Sales are doing well. Um, yes. Frodo NL says, I got acquainted with a lot of different retro systems, then found out I actually enjoy being on camera, something I'd never done before. He doesn't elaborate on what he's been doing on camera, but um, yeah, great stuff. Hey, everybody's <laughs> got to make a little extra money somehow, Frodo. <laughs> no shame. Devolution writes, Finally got new retro arcade neon up and running. Was so worth the effort to have my own virtual arcade. Oh, yeah. Well worth checking out um, new retro arcade neon. It's on Steam. You can play it traditionally or in VR. You can create your perfect VR arcade. I agree. It's one of my favorite. I, you know, I've been following that project for years, literally years. And it's so cool that the VR version is up and going. And, uh, yeah, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pajaco6502 says, becoming a teacher twice now, homeschooling for the win. Game-wise, <laughs> well, that list is getting ever bigger thanks to the Amigos Retro Gaming Network I discovered through this podcast. But I think finally getting, rid, uh, getting around to playing Enter the Gungeon did it for me. Great game that would have been at home in an arcade or retro gaming system. Is that something you covered, John, on your channel? No, we we haven't done Enter the Gun. That's a, I believe that that is a fairly modern game. I think it's a, some sort of a roguelike. So I, I, I dig those games. So I'll probably be checking that out too. I Walk Freely writes, I discovered Strat-O-Matic Baseball in lockdown. Wow, what an esoteric hobby to pick up. I love it. <laughs> not, you, not, not your usual for a UK gamer. Holy cow. But I love how it uses maths and statistics with dice to accurately produce a sports simulation game before computers were widely available. Maybe too retro? Not at all, I walk freely. I fully I fully endorse your choice. That's awesome, man. Yeah, Do you know anything I... about the Strat-O-Matic system, Neil? I do, and I learned all about it this week because I did an interview with Trip Hawkins of Electronic Arts fame, and Stratomatic Baseball is the game in the 60s that got him into gaming, and as soon as he saw his first computer, he wanted to apply the stats and the gaming mechanics of Stratomatic to a video oh, game. So yeah. it's what, it's what it, uh, motivated him to create a video games company. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Tricky underscore VFR 800 says, My Sindon light gun was delivered, and what an incredible piece of hardware it is. I've been playing a lot of gun games. I missed, like, Point Blank, Die Hard Trilogy, and Re-Survivor. Great to hear the Sindon light gun's being delivered now. Yeah. I believe that that's Resident Evil Survivor. Oh, I do apologize. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Resident <laughs> Evil Survivor. And finally... Taraka30 writes, I rediscovered all of my childhood computers and consoles and am now in the process of recommissioning them. The Spectrum Plus 2, the Mega Drive, and my beloved A1200 all rescued from the forgotten pile in the garage. I need to check out my garage, Neil. Maybe I've got a forgotten pile in there, too. I saw someone this week had a Spectrum Plus 2 and they uh, they cut the tape deck off of it so they they made it a lot shorter a really stunted spectrum and then they just plugged their iphone into the socket to load games and they called it the spectrum minus two <laughs> i don't know if i'm in favor of chopping parts off of classic computers but uh that that does sound like a cool project all right so 
Uh, subreddit users, listeners, if you are interested in participating in next week's question, uh, if you're not already a member of our subreddit, please come and join us. The name of the subreddit is just This Week in Retro. And uh, our next week's community question is, what was the most value for money you ever got from any video game? So we look forward to hearing from you. And uh, next week, we will read those responses at the end of the show. Thanks for listening to This Week in Retro. Join our show subreddit to contribute your favorite news stories. And if you really enjoy our show, then visit coffee.com forward slash this week in retro. That's ko fi.com forward slash this week in retro to put a tip in the jar. Help us spread the word about the show by telling a friend, leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice, and subscribing to the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. We'll see you next week for more up to date news for out of date tech.